Let me invite you to find your seats as we continue our worship. And so the uh, scripture reading for this morning on which our teaching will be based comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Lewis. Again, welcome to all of you who are joining us, especially those of you who are here as our guests who are here for the first time. When I first became a Christian in high school, I became a fanatic when it comes to following Jesus. I remember having three devotions a day, uh, in the morning, after school, and then before I went to sleep. I remember my friends used to complain that whenever we talked, I would somehow mention the name Jesus. I even wore those t-shirts that were just so loud and proud. I remember having one t-shirt on the back of it was this gory, bloody hand with a nail pierced through it. It was like huge. And then the words, his pain, your gain on it. I wore that every week. Seeing my newfound enthusiasm, I remember my mom getting worried. Uh, she would tell me, Jeffrey, I'm so glad that you love God, but don't do too much. <laughs> don't do too much. And I would smile and laugh because I knew what she was worried about. She was worried that I'd become some kind of Jesus freak, that I would do something off the wall, perhaps even become a pastor one day. Of course, today she's one of my biggest fans and is probably watching right now. In any case, it would be in Kenya in 1994, while on a mission trip, that I would realize that Christians aren't the only ones who are devoted to their God. I would meet a young Muslim who was as equally devoted to Allah as I was to Jesus. He followed the Quran strictly. 
studied it every day, and he, in fact, in a conversation, pointed to a mark on his forehead and said, Jeff, this is how much I love Allah. And I would look at his forehead, and I would see an indentation uh, bruised. And I'm like, what is that? He's like, it's from praying five times a day. You see, they would get on their knees and bow and hit their foreheads on the floor, and he did it so often there was a mark. At that point, I realized that Christians don't have the monopoly when it comes to devotion to God. And I began to wonder, how is my obedience to Jesus any different from a Buddhist or a Muslim? Well, our passage answers that question for us. Here in Mark chapter 14, we see what many considered at the moment an act of fanaticism, an act so extreme that Jesus' own 12 disciples thought she went overboard. In fact, they're enraged by her actions. They think she's foolish. But when you peel back the layers of her devotion, when you look at what's going on in her hearts, we see that what initially looks foolish and wasteful becomes stunningly beautiful. And in studying this action, we see what makes Christian devotion uniquely Christian. Our passage begins with Mark telling us that Passover is less than two days away. Now, for the uninformed, Passover was one of the most important feasts of Israel. Normally, Jerusalem would be about 20 to 30,000 people, but during the feast of Passover, it would swell to over 150,000 people. Now, Jesus has celebrated Passover many times before, but this year's Passover would be different. It'd be different because it would be the last time he would ever celebrate. For in two days, Jesus would be condemned and crucified on a cross. This Passover is different because Jesus would become the Passover lamb. And so death is in the air. Death is at hand. Death is on the horizon. And it's out of this foreboding and grim backdrop that Jesus receives this gift, a gift that would move him, that would minister deeply to him. Where is Jesus? He's in Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. He's at the home of Simon the leper. Now, given the ceremonial laws concerning leprosy, we know that Simon the leper was no longer a leper. He used to be one. Most likely, we can assume that he was healed by Jesus. And out of thanksgiving for what Jesus had done for him, he throws him a banquet in honor of the one who healed him. And so Jesus is surrounded by close friends and the 12 disciples. He's in a safe 
place. He's not outside in the public where he's under the crosshairs of his enemies. No, he's having an intimate meal with his loved ones. Then out of nowhere, a woman enters the room. Though she's unnamed here in Mark We know from John chapter 12 that this unnamed woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus resurrected. Mary takes out an alabaster flask of nard. What is nard? It's an extremely expensive oil extracted from a root native to the country of India. Now, I want you to know that at this point, when Mary takes out this nard, she's not doing anything out of the ordinary. No one is thinking twice because it was customary back then that the guests would be anointed with oil. But what she would do next would surprise everyone. Mary doesn't just dab Jesus with the ointment. She breaks the jar and pours all of its contents over his head. The oil is drizzling down his body. The aroma immediately fills the entire home. You could hear the collective gasp. We are told that this nard was worth more than 300 denarii. means nothing to us. But back then, a denarii was one day's wage. That's 300 working days. In their culture, they worked six days a week. What you have is an annual salary worth of nard completely disposed on Jesus in one act, one moment. What is more, this nard didn't just have monetary value. But a lot of commentators believe that this alabaster jar of nard was most likely a family heirloom, assuming that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came from a middle-class family. This nard was their family's prized possession that was passed down from one generation to the next that acted as a financial security blanket so that in 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 a time of extreme financial duress, they would use this nard to save themselves. And yet Mary takes this prized possession and pours it all on Jesus. You are crazy, thought the disciples. Verse 4 tells us that they were indignant They are livid. They are outraged. Verse 5 tells us that they scolded Mary. A chorus of accusations rained down on her. How can you waste all that nard? Do you know how hard your ancestors must have worked to purchase it? Look at the poor. Look at how many people you could have changed their lives with. And it made sense for them to think of the poor because it was customary during the Feast of Passover that the priests would collect a mercy offering for the poor. Why didn't you think about them, Mary? 
Yet the way the disciples see Mary is completely different from the way Jesus sees her. Jesus steps in and defends her. He says in verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then in verse 9, he makes a, a remarkable pronouncement. He says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus praises Mary and says that what she has done will be celebrated wherever the gospel is heard. Talk about a contrast of views. The disciples, on one hand, rebuke her. Jesus, on the other, rewards her. The disciples, on one hand, see Mary as stupid. Jesus sees her as stunning. And so why the difference? Why is Jesus pleased with Mary? I think there's no question that Jesus finds Mary's action beautiful because in that act, Jesus sees what true discipleship looks like. In this act, Jesus sees what it looks like to love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. That our God is a God who doesn't just want a piece of us. He's a God who wants all of us. That in Mary's devotion, in breaking that jar over Jesus, Mary is declaring to Jesus, I will hold nothing back from you. When it comes to my love, Jesus, there are no exceptions, no limitations, no qualifications. All that I am is yours. Jesus, seeing this, cannot help but smile. And Jesus and Mary evidently could care less about what other people think of her. She knew that her action would bring the outrage of everyone there. But all that she was concerned about was pleasing her Lord. Dear friends, when was the last time you did something for God? simply because you knew it would please him? When was the last time you did something for the Lord, even though you knew it would upset others? Perhaps you were at school and you wanted to be nice to another student, or you're in the office and you wanted to do something kind to a coworker, even though everyone at school, your friends or everyone at the office, hates this person. Or perhaps you were invited to a birthday party on a Sunday morning, and even though it would upset your kids, even though it would upset your friend, you said, no, I am going to go worship the Lord. These days, it's becoming increasingly easy to upset people for the sake of Christ. 
We live in a culture that's become more and more secular, more and more anti-Christian, which means that many of our beliefs and actions will stand at odd with society. Today, if you want to save yourself for marriage, if you are a virgin by the time you are married, you are thought strange and weird. There's something wrong with you. Today, if you hold to a biblical teaching on sexuality and gender, you're labeled a bigot, a hate monger. How can you believe in an ancient social construct? You need to be enlightened like me. Today, if a financial advisor or non-Christian friend sees how much you tithe and give to the Lord, they're going to think you are out of your mind. How can you do that? Don't you want to take care of your kids or your kids' kids? Today, it's not hard to find opportunities to suffer for Jesus, and yet we see that in those moments where all we care about is what the Lord thinks he is most pleased. But of course, Christians don't have the monopoly when it comes to suffering for God. The Christian God isn't the only God who demands total obedience. Every other religion in the world will desire strict adherence from its followers. And we're not just talking about world religions. We're talking about philosophies, podcasters, modern-day gurus. They will all exclaim to you, if you stick to this diet, you stick to this lifestyle, you will become happy, but you need to suffer. So what separates Christianity from other religions and philosophies? If it's not the call for strict, absolute obedience, then what is it? The answer is our motivation. The all-important of why. Why we obey. Why we follow Christ. When you peel back the layers and look into Mary's heart, you'll see that what drives her is an engine completely different from everyone else. You'll see that she runs on an entirely different type of fuel. You see, in religion, what motivates are usually one of three things, duty, fear, or greed. You do it because you're supposed to. You obey because you were, you're expected to, because you grew up going to church. Sometimes I'll find people say, who come back to the church, and I ask, oh, what brings you back? They're like, I just miss it. I remember running around the church when I was young, and I want my kids to do the same. So it's like a sense of nostalgia that, that motivates obedience. For others, it's this Christianized version of karma, if you do good, receive good. Do bad, you'll get bad. And so they'll obey because they don't want God to get them. They don't want something bad to happen to them. Or they'll obey because they want to be rewarded by God. They want something good to happen to them. But for Mary, 
She's not motivated by duty. No one asked her to break open that jar. She's not motivated by fear. She's not trembling, trying to appease an angry master. She's not motivated by greed as if she's trying to get Jesus to love her. No, she was secure in Jesus' love for her. Rather, what motivates her is wonder. Wonder at who Jesus is. Wonder at what Jesus will do. You see, how we view Mary's actions rises and falls on how we view Jesus. If Jesus is nothing more than a rabbi, a great teacher, even a prophet of God, then Mary's actions are wasteful. But Mary perceived Jesus differently. And how she sees him is conveyed in Jesus' defense of Mary. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 again. Jesus says this, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Let's decipher these words can there, because they're a little bit cryptic and can be easily misunderstood. When Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me, it may seem as if Jesus is devaluing the poor as if he's contrasting the poor from himself and says, I'm much more important than the poor. But that's not what he's saying. The contrast is not between the poor and Jesus. Rather, the contrast is between you always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Jesus is pointing at his pending death. He's telling them, I'm not going to be here, guys, in less than two days. You see, what enhances our understanding is Psalm 41. Psalm 41 was the classic psalm that describes the plight of the poor. It's the psalm for the poor man. Verse 1 says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. What's remarkable is that when you read Psalm 41, and I encourage you all to do that if you have extra time, you'll find that Psalm 41 reads like a biography of Jesus. Let me read just a few verses. 41 verse 3 says, The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. And so the, the psalmist says, The poor man is the one who's lying on his sickbed, waiting to be restored. Psalm 41 verse 5, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And so the poor man is the one who is encircled by his enemies, who is watching and waiting for him to die. 
Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so the poor man is one who not only has enemies, but even his closest friends betray him, who he shares table with. When you read Mark chapter 14, all of these things are fulfilled. Jesus is on his deathbed in two days, a bed made of wood shaped like a a cross. Jesus would be surrounded by enemies who watch and wait with glee, waiting for him to die. Jesus would be betrayed by his closest friends who he shares bread with. And so far from contrasting himself from the poor, Jesus is saying, I am the poor man. I am the poorest of the poor. No one will suffer more than me. No one will be more miserable than me. I am about to die. And Mary sees Jesus' duress. She senses that something is going to happen horribly wrong. She knew that Jesus was going to die. This is why Jesus says, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. This was Mary's way of saying goodbye. And what made her offering that much more meaningful is that back then in Jesus' day, it was customary for all Jews who died to be anointed with perfumes and spices for burial. It was part of their tradition as a way to honor the body, the body that God has created from dust. And so everyone who died was anointed with these perfumes for burial. Everyone except one category of people, criminals. Especially criminals executed on a cross. Their bodies would be lumped into a common pit covered with dirt. And so Mary's anointing of Jesus' body would become that much more meaningful because she fills in that gap and honors Jesus. Now you might ask, how does Mary know that Jesus was going to die? I mean, the 12 disciples didn't know. Well, if there's one thing we learn about Mary throughout the Gospels, said she's a really good listener. We find her sitting at Jesus' feet, absorbing his words, mulling over his teaching. And we know that on multiple occasions, Jesus prophesied about his death. And though his words were confusing for his disciples because they had another paradigm of what the Messiah ought to look like, it didn't miss Mary She understood. She saw. At the same time, as much as Jesus identifies himself as the poor man, I don't want us to make the mistake in thinking that Christian devotion and obedience is motivated by pity. That we love God 
because we feel sorry for him. There is no room for pity here. As much as Jesus identifies with the poor man, he does not suffer from low self-esteem. He knows his self-worth. He knows that as great as his anguish and misery is now, vindication and glory is right around the corner. Though he sees himself as the poor man, he knows that he's also the great I am, that he will conquer the grave, that he will be resurrected in heavenly glory. His his self-worth is seen and communicated in the way he receives Mary's offering. I mean, by accepting Mary's offering, an offering worth $60,000, dollars $80,000, blown all at once for Jesus to defend her and praise her, you did a good thing, is Jesus' way of saying what? It's his way of saying, I am worth it. I am worth it. You get me, Mary. You see who I am. You understand that there's nothing you can sacrifice for me that you do not receive tenfold in me. You will not regret it. As if that weren't enough to to broadcast Jesus' self-worth in verse 9 when he says, wherever the gospel is preached around the world, people will be celebrating you, Mary. Jesus is predicting the whole world is going to hear about who I am. I am not some nobody. I am not some insignificant figure who happens to be wise. People are going to be talking about my life, death, and resurrection because it's through my death and resurrection that the gates of heaven have been opened up and that our God can have a loving relationship with sinful man because I will die for the sins of the world. Jesus knew his self-worth. He knew that he was the God-man who laid down his life so that sinful man can be reconciled unto God. He knew that he would be the body that would be broken open so that his blood might cleanse us of all of our sins. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the lion and the lamb. Now do you see what separates Christian devotion from the world's? It's wonder at who Jesus is. This amazing mixture of strength and power and humility and weakness. This wondrous mixture of compassion and holiness. This mixture of confidence and yet gentleness. And ultimately, What drives our obedience is not duty, nor fear, or greed, but worship. 
Worship at who Jesus is. Worship at the one who became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. Worshiping the one who is seated in heaven above, reigning over all the kingdoms of this world. And so my question for you this morning is, do you see Jesus? How do you see him? How you see him changes everything. How you see him will impact how you serve him, how you love him. So dear friends, what is capturing your gaze this morning? What is on your purview? Is it the wonder, the love, and majesty of Christ? Or is it the things, the concerns, the worries of this world? It is my prayer that Jesus would capture your gaze. Just as he captured Mary's gaze, he would capture our hearts so that we would follow him and serve him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Let's pray. Lord, we see, Lord, that this gospel is not about a system. It's not about rules, regulations. It's about a divine relationship with one who became poor and broke his body for us so that we might become your children. Lord, may the wonder of the cross capture our gaze this morning. And may the wonder of the glorious resurrection, the wonder of Jesus' power and majesty capture our hearts this morning so that we, like Mary, would bow before you and unrestrictedly offer you everything. And so, Lord, would you help us to see you and help us to see how you are more worthy of our affections than the lifeless gods of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.